Oh, hey there, folks. This is your host, Kate, and I'm jumping on to let you know, as I always do, that this is a multi-parter with the lovely Steve Main. Steve is a comic and a financial analyst and a teacher and has done all the things, and you will notice a very posh London accent. He is born and raised there and actually from there. It's like people claiming that they're from Chicago when they're really from Indiana or any of the myriad ways that we lie. Uh, but Steve is actually from London, and he shares so much and so openly and so honestly and was very patient because uh, Zoom changed their terms and the meeting went from being free for an hour to 40 minutes and it was really annoying and he was very patient. Um, it is a very rainy day in Los Angeles and that is the sound that you are hearing behind me. I was going to go and make it very sound perfect and go into the sound booth and make it all sound great. How many times can I say sound? But I thought that the rain was apropos to a London interview. So that's what we're doing. Uh, thank you folks so much for listening to this multi-parter with comic, financial analyst, and teacher Steve Main. Sort of just random questions about um, you being a comic and stuff. It went, it went appetizers and then dessert. Is there a middle set of questions I didn't get? Uh, yeah, entrees. Shit. Yeah, there's, like, there's like two courses, and I'm like... Not to be stereotypical, but I think Americans know there's more than two courses. Right? <laughs> Not all of us do. And also, like, this is a comedy podcast. I am a comic. So we are expecting a little bit of exaggeration on the stories. Just a bit. Otherwise, they'd be a bit boring, wouldn't they? That's right. you're listening to service from hell a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good bad and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work i'm actor and writer kate gaffney and i'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as i used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in los angeles and at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when i was running around like a crazy person so let's eat I'd like to welcome our guest, comic and writer and generally very funny person, Steve Main. Steve is a London. Hello. Oh, wow. Steve, hold on. You're going to come in when I ask you questions. Hold on, Steve. It's okay. I'm not editing this part out, but I appreciate you saying hi. So let's eat. Steve Main is a Londoner who was actually born in London to parents that were also born in London and that it, people don't know, but that makes Steve a unicorn. He's an ex-financial analyst, an ex-school teacher, and a full-time comic and MC, thinker behind the storytelling comedy night, Tall Tales and Cocktails, and a man just desperately trying to be a better human being. Isn't that a lovely perspective, y'all? That said, uh, Steve, what have you ever been on TV and can you tell us about it? How much do you love being a comic? What got you into full-time comedy? Now you can talk. Oh, yeah. Well, when I was a financial analyst, I was frequently on TV. Were you? Um, I was. I was. I love it how you got this one in quick. Uh, yeah. Um, so like, the nice story, the nice story about me being on TV, when I was courting my wife, courting because I'm English, we use those terms. Uh -huh. she, was in, she was in New York and I was being interviewed on a leading financial network at the time, which was also being broadcast in New York. And she came down the stairs with her friend. She went, oh my God, that's my boyfriend. So um, that, gives you, that gives you a lot of points with the ladies. Sure um, does. Sure does. Yeah. yeah. And they think you're rich. I think that might help. But. <laughs> What? No, women don't care about no, that stuff. No, just your no, heart. Definitely. Just your heart, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. so you so you were on TV as a financial analyst. Would you be like 
would you be giving, would you be talking about money and stuff and like helping people figure oh, that out on TV? Yeah. So they would sort of like phone you up like the day before and they would be like, right, tomorrow I want you to come on to about the UK telecommunications sector. So you'd be like, fine, no problem. You'd spend like all night going through every listed company, trying to find like all the best stuff, like all the G's that's happening. And then you'd be driven, you'd be driven to the studio and then all of a sudden something crazy would happen. Normally North Korea would do something and they'd be like, right. North Korea set off a missile. We're going to have to talk about natural gas and oil prices. And you're like, I know nothing about those things. Nothing whatsoever. So you just come up with like lines to use all the time. So like my favorite line would be, well, in the short term, there's always going to be volatility. But a trend <laughs> will show. And I think retail investors should always jump on board when the true trend shows. That will be the easiest way to make money. Wait, say that slower. Wait, say that slower. Wait, say that slower. Hold on. I didn't catch it. Okay. What was the second one? Say it slower. All right. So it's a catch all to any financial question. Okay. And it's right. As the news breaks, there's always going to be short term volatility. And that's really only for the day trades. The experts should get involved then. For the more retail investors, wait till a true trend is formed. And that's when you should start looking at investing. That you're not no saying anything. That's like- exactly. No matter, no matter the question, if it's got to do with financial markets, that answers virtually everything. Like think of any any possible question that could happen. What do you think? You know, did they catch on to the fact that you were just repeating yourself every time you were on the show? But if you listen to any version of punditry, be it on a spool like the Oscars, it doesn't matter. Like professional pundits never say a word. Like it never, they say words, but they don't actually say anything. It's just like noise to fill your brain. Very few people actually say anything. Like, and financial pundits are the same as soccer pundits, the same as anything. So did you, did someone like do a sort of press tour, like how to's with you before you got on TV? <laughs> Don't be so silly. Um, I'm sure they do that for some people, but I was writing in the financial press. And so I was asked to do it after I'd been writing in the financial press. So obviously they had a vague idea. I didn't know what I was talking about. But it was those, you know, I would say it was more common than not. You would be asked to do one thing and then you would end up talking about something else. And so you needed those like buzzword phrases just so you could fill in the time. But if I was talking about something I knew about and had researched, obviously I'd hope it successful. If you knew about the subject, you would speak more specifically. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But if someone, if all of a sudden there's been breaking news, and breaking news is what affects the financial markets in the short term, obviously everybody wants to listen to people's opinion on that. But how can you have an opinion on something when it happened 10 minutes ago and it's not your area of expertise? Yeah. So you've just, you know, reel out these old phrases time and time and time again. So, yeah, that would happen a lot. Wait, and at no point were they like, hey, Steve, the last three times you've been on here, you've literally said the same thing? No, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I've got a vocabulary. I can use different <laughs> words. <laughs> I sleep on a thesaurus and I just hope the words <laughs> Osmosis, brain. okay. Yeah. Okay, so you are a Londoner that is has London-born parents. And so have you lived yeah, yeah. Any, anywhere else in the world or have you only ever lived in London? No, just... Just London. So when I was a child, I was born in East London. So I should be like, all right, princess. I speak a bit like that. Um, but when I was younger, I moved to a place called Surrey, which is a posh bit of England. Um, Surrey is so posh. Surrey and Surrey effectively sound the same. But the irony is no one from Surrey has ever said sorry in their life. Um, so when I first went there, I still spoke like a cockney. And I think when I first walked in, my teachers were like, we haven't ordered any tradesmen. Like, who's... <laughs> Who's this person? <laughs> like, all right, miss, we can do some English today, yeah? 
And so, yeah, so I like, had my East London accent beaten out of me. But after a few drinks, it does come back. Does it? Okay. And I studied in London. I did my degrees in London. And um, yeah, and I live there now. I live, I live here in West London. Okay, so get us to today. How in the world did you go from financial analyst to teacher to now full-time comic? Like, were you always funny? Was that always something that was kind of brewing in the background? You know, I just think like any comic, we just want the um, we want the attention of others and especially people what? we don't know. When we, when we get their approval, then we know that our self-esteem like jug is slowly filling up inside us. <laughs> I think that's, that, that's what anybody wants. But, you know, it's just a, a, a sequence of unfortunate events, you know, is your life and you keep going forward and you try to make the best of it. And when you've got enough tall tales, then you can get drunk and start telling silly stories. And when you start telling silly stories, you make people laugh and you're like, hang on, this feels great. Like I'm entertaining people, I'm helping people. And, you know, if I can do it on stage and people pay money to hear me tell the stories, then that's great. Like, there's no better job in the world, is that so? It's mm -hmm. like my favorite thing to do. So did you, the first time you got on stage, did you bomb, but you were like, oh, I still want to do this forever? Or like, what was your first time doing comedy? Well... So I'd, I'd, I'd performed on stage before and, and like done like, like spoken word stuff when I was younger, like when I was at university and when I was doing my A-levels. So being on stage, I wasn't that concerned about after I had been being interviewed on TV and things. But it's the first time you like say a joke and you know when you're writing down a joke, as you know, you know yourself and you're like, this is the punchline. This is going to kill them. They're going to be crying in their seats and you say it and there's nothing. And you're like, <laughs> fuck. fuck. Right. <laughs> What do I do now? How do I get around this? But I think like the first set I did um, was like, like, I think I had a five and I managed to do a three, but it went okay. Like there was enough laughter to get me going back. And something I did, because I'm 41 and most people when they start comedy in London, I don't know, you can tell me what it is on your side of the pond, but most people like 21, 22, 23. So they just looked at me and assumed I'd been doing it for ages. Yeah. And because I was relatively confident on stage and I just never corrected them. I was like, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I was just working on some new stuff. That's never done that before. It wasn't a lie. I just said it with the confidence of somebody should have never done it. That was it. Oh, that's such a good get. I didn't even think about that. Like, if you don't look 21, then they do assume yeah. you've got a little bit of experience on stage. And if you're confident. I mean, I've said this 100% of the time. Like, as a comic, all you have to do is take the reins and make sure the audience knows that you're steering the ship. Like, you got it. That's all they want. They just want a leader. And they're more apt to laugh if they think that you're not going to lose it on stage or that your confidence isn't going to be rattled. If you can just stay the course, even if they don't laugh they're going to laugh. It's a weird, everybody wants mommy. Essentially. Yeah, um, I think I, I, like for anybody who's starting out, like if you can find a genuine comedy mentor, like somebody who actually like likes what you're doing, they believe in what you're doing. They see like, if you try your best, people will always help you. Aww. And I've got, I've got a great one. He's a guy called Kyle Wallace. Little shout out Kyle. Um, he runs the GMB comedy things in London. And it is incredible. And like one of his rules, like if you do one of his, his nights, he's on the open mic nights, he has pro spots at the end. Um, is like you can't go up on stage with notes, no notes, like nothing written on your hand, nothing. Like even though it's amateur, you should deal with it professionally, and that's like a brilliant lesson. And secondly, is never tell the audience it's a new joke. The audience don't know it's a new joke; they've never seen you perform before. So say everything with confidence, like like you're you know Don Delanooch. You've done it a million times. This is a joke, and believe me, it's funny. You will laugh when I say this. 
And when you can start getting the audience that way, then really, as long as you're saying things interesting and entertaining, it doesn't need to be punchline, 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 punchline. And um, you know, that's my style of comedy. The people who can remember a million puns, I'm like in awe of. Or like really like short one-liner comics. I'm like, oh my god, like how do you do that? Just tell a story about getting drunk and falling into a river. Right? It's much easier. Like, it is so much easier. Well, what is? I can't remember his name. I saw him at Edinburgh. Uh, Tom. Uh, Tom. Is it Tom? Oh, Tim Vine. Tim, Tim Vine. Vine. Yeah, he's incredible. Oh my gosh, it was just pun, 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 pun. I couldn't even keep up, and the audience was just—it was constant laughter. And I thought, oh god, if this is comedy in in Scotland and London, I'm out. Like this is too hard. <laughs> He's a master pun meister, as we would say. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. Tim Vine's amazing. So how did you end up with a comedy mentor? Did you go to him, right. to Kyle, and say, help me? No, not really. Like, like, you know, I was chosen, um, I suppose. I, know, I, just, look, I think that you should always try your best in anything. And in anything I do, I like to try to understand as much about it as possible. Because when I've tried to not understand everything, it doesn't seem to work. So, you know, turning up early listening to the other comics, having set up the stage, you break down the stage, understand why they're doing lineups in certain orders, you know, the way that different people market different events. And you can only learn that by going and helping people who have been doing it before. And, you know, everybody goes, I want to be a comic or I want to be an MC. And you're like, okay, if you want to be an MC, get there early, set the place up, find out what's happening, talk to the promoter, talk to the acts. It's your job to know everything. And I just kept on doing that. I just kept on doing that. I kept on doing that. And and oddly, I think he put like a Facebook post up because he was opening another night looking for an MC. And he was like, make yourself indispensable. You don't need to be good, but just do what Steve Main did. Keep turning up. Wow. That's it. Keep turning up. It's like going to the gym. You might not always work out crazy, but if you go every other day or every three days or whatever, like turn that into a good habit. Mm. And eventually you will do something. And if you spend enough time around comedy, you're going to learn more about comedy. And comedy isn't just the person on the stage. Why is that person on the stage before another person? Like, and those types of things, how you keep the audience entertained throughout a whole night. Like, these are things that you need to think of. And the more you understand that, I just think the better the show is and the audience are the boss. Yeah, I, that's it. Yeah, the audience are my boss. And, and I think like there's some amazing comedy. I know you, you've known some of them from your, from your unnamed LA, LA, um, but there's some brilliant comics who have given tremendous advice. Um, if you listen to like the Joey Diaz we spoke about, I was like, oh, you've met Joey Diaz, wow. <laughs> but like, if you listen to enough church episodes, he's like, like tells you exactly what you've got to do. Um, Ralphie May, mm, um, obviously I'll never get a chance to see him, is not with us anymore. Yeah. But he's got a brilliant YouTube clip, and it's like an hour and 20 minutes um, at an unknown comedy uh, venue in LA. And um, he gives the people you know, a brilliant lesson. And it's like, you're there to understand the audience. Don't try to make comics laugh. Like, don't worry about it. Comics don't buy tickets. The audience buys tickets. And comics don't laugh. That's the hardest audience you'll ever perform yeah. in front of. They don't yeah. laugh. You say a brilliant joke in front of a comic. Like, some people are really nice. Like, don't get me wrong, but there are some people who aren't. They like, and they'll be like, yeah, you should do this joke this way. Or they'll nick the joke. And you're like, why? Like, yeah, you don't get awards for art. We're here to make them laugh. That's right. And if we all work together as a lineup and they really laugh, we're all going to get books again. We're all going to make more money. Like, let's just all be nice to each other. You don't have an argument with someone before you go on stage. I want to be out the back. I want to have, I, I drink shandies before I go on. I don't know if you have those in America. That's don't know what that is. Lager. Ah. Um, it, it looks like I'm drinking a pint. Ah. Um, 
So everyone goes, do you want a drink? You're like, no, I've already got one, even though it's like half lemonade. Um, nice. You know, you just want to have, you want to be chilled before you go on stage. And then when you're on stage, you want to make sure you're hitting your points. You're entertaining the audience. I want to bring them in. I want them to think I'm talking to them. And yeah, you, but when it goes well, there's no better feeling. There's no better feeling. That's right. It's like drugs. Well, and I think, I mean, this audience, my audience may not have seen you perform live yet. They will at some point. But the thing that I really liked that you did when I saw you perform is a lot of us were seated kind of far away because it was a more small audience and like a smaller venue because I was making you perform whilst I was in London. I was like, you have to go up. But you immediately said, well, everybody come in closer. You weren't a dick about it. You were just like, well, come here. I want to tell you guys something. And it shifted the energy in the whole room and everybody relaxed. And you were performing in front of probably a 50% comic audience, but everybody did what you said. And it shifted how people were able to receive the everything you said. And I was like, oh, this is brilliant. And it also gave me confidence because I was like, I guess this leader is making me do this thing. I guess I'll follow him. And it immediately put my shoulders down. And I was like, he's got this. I'm not concerned. And that I think that that is there's some magic in that as well. So commending you on your style. Thank you very much. But yeah, you are literally right. You're a comic. I want to see you perform. I'm like, oh, okay. I literally made like five phone calls. My performance was one of the closest to where you were staying. You're so sweet. Yeah, it was good. It yeah. was good. Yeah, well, at least you had fun. Oh, and it was great. And you're, I really do like your style. But yeah, I really appreciate that you're you're you made it a tighter experience and i think it's like comedy doesn't necessarily play to the back you have to pretend like everybody's literally on stage with you and that's really hard that's why when comics can do stadiums i'm like how do you harness this energy like i don't the stadium thing that must be super crazy because you'll be telling a joke and you're not going to hear the laughter from the very back that like that that can take an extra quarter of a second to get you yeah timing it must be so different. And I think you notice, like, when you watch, like, the Masters, like, when you watch your Chappelle's, like, they speak so much slower. And I think that must be the stadium thing because they know that, you know, there's, you know, 17,000 people in the audience or whatever. And so they've got to be slow because the person in front of you could be eating chips, opening a can of drink or something. So they just speak a bit slower. Everything's much clearer just so everybody can really hear what they're saying. You don't seem to get, and maybe, I don't know, it's an audience thing, but you don't seem to get those very quick comics playing those massive rooms. What a great point. It might be an audio thing. Well, I hadn't even thought about that. I want, it is, Bill Burr's most recent special, he did it at Red Rocks in uh, Denver. And I was like, he did change his style ever so slightly. He was, he did take longer pauses. That's so interesting. I think you're right. I hadn't even thought about that because of the sound traveling and yeah. Yeah. One day if we're ever playing to 17,000, um, I'll worry about it. But when, when, yeah. not when, if, when. when. Let's okay. get to 1700 first. That would be good. That'd be great. Okay. So, <laughs> so speed us up to today. So you're, you're moving away from teaching and comedy and um, comedy and emceeing are going to be a full-time deal for you. How does yeah, that yeah, work yeah. in London? So, so either, so either I so I put on my own night, the tall tales and cocktails. Um, so we try to do that once a month. Um, so that's beautiful. It's just a little theater above a bar. Always keep comedy and alcohol close together. That's a very key point. Um, the more drunk you get, the funnier we do become. It's science. It's weird, but argue. it's true. <laughs> it's just, it's just how it works. And then it's just trying to, it, it's just trying to build up as much momentum as you can. Um, but I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you need to back yourself. And, you know, if you put on your own nights, you try to get yourself out there as much as possible and you create your own audience. 
lots of people rely on other people to get them gigs and friends of friends and that type of thing. And I'm like, no, found this theater. Let's put some comics on in here. And, you know, I want to build something. And quite a lot of English comedy, um, you know, is more, it seems to be more like short one-liners yeah. and puns. And that's brilliant. And that, that there's a place for that. And I love that style. But actually, like, people are going to tell, like, a longer form of a story, like a 15- or 20-minute story. There aren't that many places that do that. And there's definitely an audience for it. And really, that's what I'm trying to do. That's awesome. Okay. And so are you also, because does it work in England where you need to also be a touring comic? So you're doing, you know, you're going up to Scotland, you're going to Wales, you're doing, like, all of that? Yeah, it's definitely something we're looking at. But obviously, when you're in London already... Like that's that's where you can get the most amount of gigs. So I'd imagine, like, if you're in New York or LA, you can get gigs all the time. If you're in, I don't know, Ohio, it might be slightly harder to get on stage as much. I don't know. My American geography is appalling. Apologies to anyone. I don't think you remember. That's where I'm originally from. Is Ohio? That's so funny. Oh, that's must have been where I must have read it from. Yeah, Ohio. that's that. That's so funny. Yeah. Okay. And the uh, Neil Young song, I think, yeah. probably going through. <laughs> okay, so. That, that that's your road to comedy that's amazing so we're uh at the end of the show we'll talk about where people can see you when they are in london yeah, sure. and so we'll get there um well folks we hope you enjoyed your apps we're going to move on to the entrees after a quick break you're back it worked amazing okay we are back and now it is time for the entrees okay Steve, I always call this the speed round of questions. It's not take your time. Tell us stories. I know you've never seen these questions before, so this is going to just be off of the top of your head. So on the fly, here we go. What was your first job ever, ever, ever? Okay. Well, my first like job ever was a paper boy um, where you like deliver papers like on your bicycle when I was young. Now, do you guys call them paper rounds or paper boy? Do yeah. you? Yeah. So you're, you do a paper round and you are a paper boy. I suppose now you'd be a paper person. Oh, you're sure. Okay. So you were a paper person. Um, how, a paper person. how old were you when you did that? Like I was probably, I was like 14 to 16. Oh, you did it for uh, two years? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause it was like one of the jobs you could do before school, but it was a nightmare. Cause on Sundays, I don't know if your, your Sunday paper is much thicker than yeah. the weekday papers. Mm-hmm. So doing them on Sundays was, was terrible. And I did it when Diana died. Like, I'm that like, old. Oh my God. So, so, so my lasting effects of Princess Diana dying was being delayed because they needed to have all the papers reprinted. And like that, that obviously her dying was also terrible. Like, don't get me wrong. Sure, sure. It was a terrible, terrible incident for the world. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I remember. That's how I remember the day. It was a Sunday. Because you were meant to, you were meant to deliver papers on the day that yeah. she passed away. And, but they had to, so they were like, hold on, we have to reprint yeah. them. Yeah. Because so I, Right, I, my my knowledge of the accident is that, but I believe she was in a car crash in a, in a tunnel in Paris, yep. and then she actually passed away in the hospital. They mm-hmm. got her to the hospital, and so all the papers were like holding the front pages. Oh, I forgot because they didn't know if she was dead. Yeah, and um, and I, obviously it was massive worldwide news, but the epicenter of the news was was in England, and uh, yeah, everything was on hold. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you, so you were delivering papers during that time. So how, what was the time? I don't mean to hyper-focus on this, but this is fascinating. So at what point did you actually have the printed papers that you could deliver on that day? Uh, Yeah, you had to, you like literally waited a few hours and then they arrived. And I don't even, I'm not actually a hundred percent sure that on the Sunday papers, 
um, they had a passing away that might have actually come out on the Monday because remember they were the wonderful times before mobile phones and before the internet where you had to wait for the news or, or the newspaper to actually find out what was happening. Like breaking news would be on the radio. Wow, you had to wait to be assaulted by all the sadness. This is why we're all depressed now. Okay, <laughs> so you were a paper person from fourteen to sixteen. Were you? So yeah. you would? Were you also playing sports or anything in school? Yeah. So so yeah. So when I was at school, I played um, hockey. I think you guys called it field hockey. Oh, you played um, field hockey. I didn't know men could. I didn't know that was a male sport. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, with the stick and the little ball on astroturf, and you'd rip your like arms and legs to bits. Yeah. Yeah. And football, obviously, cricket, um, a little bit of rugby, but I wasn't tough enough. Okay, understandable. And but so what I don't understand then is so at what point were you sleeping? Because if you're delivering papers before school, I would imagine that was what at five a.m. Yeah, so I think you'd get there at yeah half five, and um, I would I would only deliver papers four days a week. I didn't do it every day. I wasn't like that crazy. I would do the weekends because you got paid more money and like two days during the week. Okay, but still. I mean, like, when, yeah. how did you have the energy to go to sports practice and then do homework? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't manage to figure out how to get extra energy till later in life. <laughs> I'll leave that <laughs> alone. Okay. But, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think, like, like that was the way, like, you, you, you had your pocket money, so you had some money in your pocket. Like, it, it gave you freedom. Sure. Like, it made you feel you were doing something, and it stores a work ethic in you as well. Yeah. Like, uh, like get stuff done. Um, but I wasn't a paper boy. I thought I was a paper boy until I could get a better job in a shop or a restaurant or a bar. So sure. It was, sure. It was just like the first job. Okay. So that was, so you were doing that and then doing sports and that's all, that's throughout high school. Did you go to boarding school like most Londoners? No, no, no. no, no. no I went to private school when I was younger. Oh, and then for my A-levels, which is like, I suppose, pre-college, um, I was in a state school. Oh, okay. To- wow, you're, you're rare. Okay. So that was your first job ever. How many customer service jobs have you had total, would you say? I reckon I'm going for around, I'm going nine to 10. Holy shit. Okay. Can you, can you remember all of them besides, okay, so paper, paper. I can't remember all of them. Like, but so after, so after paper boy, I worked as a kitchen pooler. I fixed the washed up. That was the only job I've ever been fired from as well. Wait, why were you fired? Right. So one of the guys who worked there said I was covering his shift, but didn't tell me. And then the next day I went to work and they were like, you didn't turn up yesterday. And I was like, I wasn't supposed to. And there was the guy looking really like odd in the background, like cleaning up these pots. And um, I was doing my A-levels. That was his proper job. And I was like, you know what, have it. But I didn't really care. But that's the only job I've been fired for. Well, that's really kind of you. Because I would have been like, listen. It it didn't matter. I did. Obviously, I didn't just go, well, fair enough and leave. I was like, this is absolute bollocks. Like, I wasn't supposed to be here. That guy's lying. And they're like, that guy works here full time and has worked here for three years. You've been here four months or whatever. I wasn't there very long. And yeah. Like, Bye. That was it. Oh, that would have. Oh, I'm such a I'm such a justice person. That would have chapped my ass so hard. Okay, so <laughs> kitchen porter. When you say that language, because that's that specific language to the UK, you literally were just you were like the the dishwasher essentially. Is that right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, so okay. the plates would come in from the restaurant and the glasses, and you have on those like big machines. Yeah, the hot. Yeah, yeah. You'd scrape off off everything. You'd listen to the chefs scream at each other. That was like the most entertaining thing. If anyone's ever worked in a kitchen, chefs shouting at each other is the most fun thing. Especially if the restaurant, the the guys can't see it, the uh, guys and gals and everything in between can't see into the kitchen, Mm -hmm. but they can only hear what's happening when the door opens. 
So you're like, you fucking fuck, fuck, fuck. Door opens later, let's play some quiet again. <laughs> oh, it's so oh, true. Oh, she starts screaming at each other, dodging knives. That type of thing. Yep, that's very real. And that's true it's in the real. States, it's too. True. Yeah, it's very yeah. real. Okay, so you said nine or ten. So Kitchen Porter was next. What other customer service jobs can you remember that you had? Oh, okay. So I've had like numerous waiting and bartending jobs. Um, I sold car stereos. That was like one of my one of my favorite jobs. We've got some stories about that. We'll come into them. Okay. Um, but when I was a student, um, so when I was a student, I always liked working in restaurants. I like working in bars because if you worked in just like a clothes store or something, you might have got a discount on clothes, but they wouldn't feed you. So if you worked in a restaurant, then there was always food. There was always like good food as well. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it would be like staff food. So, you know, it might be the stuff they couldn't sell to the public for some whatever health and safety reason, but it was perfectly fine to eat. So you'd actually get like fruit and vegetables and like proper meat. And when you're a student and you're like living on, you know, baked beans and brown toast, for somebody to give you fish, you're like, wow. This is crazy. This is what my body needs. Yeah. And um, obviously bars and cocktail bars for the obvious reasons. You um going to have fun. Yeah. Get a few drinks. Get a few stories. Just a couple, and, just two drinks, and then you're fine, and then you move yeah. on because you're going to go study and be responsible. Yeah. That makes sense. That's okay. exactly what happened every day. I believe you. Um, okay, so you had various waiting and bartending jobs, and then when you sold <laughs> car stereos, how long yeah. did you have that job? Oh, I had that job for my whole A levels. I was there for two years. That was a Saturday and Sunday job. Oh, what? That, that was that was one of my favorite jobs. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. Why? That was a good job. Well, first I got to listen to music all day, oh. which was great. That is pretty um, great. There, was, there were like so many little side things you could do to earn an extra bit of pocket money. Like, um, so people would buy a car stereo, but they would need, like, and you got free installation from the company, but they would need to wait two weeks. for, the, for like. So I'd be like, just, just come back in like 20 minutes and I'll meet you out the back. And you would just like put their car stereo and you'd like, they'll give you like 20 quid or something. That's being paid four pounds an hour. Like, that was amazing. Wait, how much were you made? Four pounds an hour? Yeah, you've got to remember, I'm 41, so this was like a long time ago. This is when I was like 16 or 17. So. But it wasn't, I mean, that wasn't in the 1800s. Four pounds an hour is like, that's the equivalent of like five or six American dollars an hour. Like that's... Pounds very bad at the moment. I think that's like $100 today. <laughs> the pound is pretty bad right now. I know. I'm so pissed that I was there right before the pound tanked. And then I was like, motherfucker. Of course it would have been cheaper to be... How more drinks could I have bought? Yeah. How much more fun could I have had? God damn it. Um, um, but yeah, in that, I will talk about it in a minute, but in that job, I had one of the worst ever customer experiences when I was serving a customer. Well, go I ahead. I got my own back. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Well, you got what back? I got my own back on the customer in the end, which was like gave me like an amazing sense of self achievement. Well, well, let's go ahead and share that story now, Steve. Go ahead. Okay, so um, so uh, most so everybody when they're seventeen gets the car in England or seventeen eighteen. That's when you can drive, and you always start with like these tiny little terrible cars. And the way to impress women when you're a young boy with a terrible car is to have an amazing sound system. I don't know if any man's ever asked a girl if that's actually true or not. <laughs> but like our teenage minds, but yeah. <laughs> we can play Nirvana really loudly for diggers that type. And um and this kid's come in with his dad. Um and they've asked me for the they've asked for like the car the, the speakers and I've told them what size they are. And the dad's been really rude. He's gone, How do you know what size they are? Like, I wouldn't he literally used the words, I wouldn't have expected you to be that intelligent. You work here, you must be stupid. And I was like, I would have what are you talking about? I would have walked away. He, I don't know how you kept talking to him. He was the rude rude like like a posh, rude English man, and they are terrible. I understand why people hate them. And um, so he's bought the wrong ones. And so they've gone off, 
And I, I know they're the, I just know they're the wrong size. They're the wrong size. The kid comes back next week, the following week. Um, obviously, they don't fit. And he's like, can I exchange them? Um, I'm like, oh, I've, I've never, what, no. And he's gone, do you not remember me? I don't have a receipt, but my dad was really rude to you. And I went, I can't remember anybody being rude to me last week. I'm really sorry. We can't help you. That's amazing. So he was trying so, to say, I don't have the receipt, but like, trust me, I yeah. was here. Yeah, and you, you, you served me last week. You can help me out. And I'm like, no. Oh, I love that so much. And so did your management hear that like, like you, was there a policy you have to have a receipt in order to be able to do an exchange? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So for anybody to exchange, you definitely need a receipt. And I told him they were wrong and he was a complete dick about it. So <sighs> like, and so when he came back, knowing they were wrong without receipt, obviously all the boxes opened, they've like tried to screw them in and stuff. Like, like that's not in perfect condition. Um, so they're like, no, you can't exchange them and you don't have receipts. So we can't actually do anything. I I love that a lot. I love that a whole whole lot. If he he hadn't been, if he like, this is the key. Don't be rude to people serving you. If you're lovely to people serving you, they will help you because most of the people you deal with are so. I don't necessarily think they purposely rude, but like it's their job. Like today, I need to buy this. I need to buy this, and you're just the person helping them get their day done. So they're not being rude. They're just not, you know recognizing you as a human sometimes i know that's a strange thing to say no it's it's true yes and so if you can just take an extra two seconds just to be nice to somebody or go oh that's cool or ask them their opinion on something but just make a positive impression if anything does go wrong and you need to go back to the store they are far more likely to help you. It's just like common courtesy. I've said this all the time. It's I used to uh, like I would bartend this very specific shift where the Friday happy hour was this crazy busy shift, but it was almost always the same people. And they were always trying to run a scam and get a free drink. But there were a handful of the regulars who were super cool to me, always nice, never asked for anything. And I was like, I have a tab that I'm allowed to put giveaway drinks on. I track them and trust and believe I am not adding a singular pint to any of you assholes, but these people over here who never ask me for anything and are always lovely. And they're also here every Friday. They're getting on the free tab and people, I mean, they would be so mad. They would see me do it and they would see me not ring it in on the tab for that table. Oh, they would get hot. And it's like, yeah, there is a little bit of power that you get to have in customer service, and that's it. <laughs> like, but, right, it's like I've worked behind bars. Being a bartender is a brilliant job. And if you want to be a stand up comic, I really recommend it because nothing puts you in the firing line of more drunk people than when you're a bartender. Um, but I was in um, I was in the Pierre Hotel in New York um, with one of my friends, and he likes to never sit at the bar. But if I'm in a bar, I always always sit at the bar. Wait, why? Because, oh, because, right, so that if, if I'm a stranger in the town, the people who are going to know the coolest stuff to do will be the people who are local. That's right. And the person most likely to be local is the bartender because they work late. They're not going to live very far away normally because it's, it's a long travel. And I've like, insisted we sat at the bar. And um, and by the way, the hotel's brilliant. Um, go, go, and the bar's great. And You said it's the Pierre say, Hotel? Is that what you said? It was yeah, the Pierre Hotel. hotel. And I can't, I won't say the bartender's name just in case, but like he was a really nice guy. And I was chatting to him and I liked boxing and the guy looked like he went to the gym. And I found it was the Golden Gloves champion of New York. The bartender was? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I bartend and it gives me the time to go training. And then I was talking, so I worked in cocktail bars and we were like talking about our favorite cocktails to make. 
and there were spirits I'd never seen behind the bar because some spirits are just made for the American audience, um, the American market, or they're just they never exported it to Europe. And so I was chatting to him, going, "I've never seen that. What's this? Five hours, never paid for a drink." He was like, "Oh, you want to try this? Like, he's not pouring me out like giant amounts. Sure, sure, sure. Just like like just little tasters, like third of shots of everything." Like we were staying, like I was with my friend who was staying in the hotel, and and um, so that obviously that helps because you're a guest. But just being nice to somebody, like asking who they are, mm. and if they've got time, and you know, if you've worked in a bar, especially like one of the more upmarket ones, they're dead for like the whole time, and maybe two or three hours, you're actually busy. So yep. if you're talking to somebody, and it's a guest, so your boss is happy, you're going to keep them talking because otherwise, you're sitting there doing a crossword or looking busy jobs which suck like everybody knows that always be nice to your bartenders i totally agree with that okay so i want to go back so you so car stereos that's the what else can you think of any other specific jobs that you did that were customer service i know you said a bunch of like waiting and bartending but is there any yeah, other so, yeah so i was a cocktail bartender at music venue Ooh. and i was yeah and i was the um bartender that um i didn't always work there but sometimes i'd work like where the bands were like the backstage area Oh, I bet that was fun. So that was cool. So yeah, so I got I I met Baby Spice when like the Spice Girls were something. What? And that was like what? Like I'm not saying I'm a giant Spice Girls fan. That's not really my type of music. But then it was so massive, and just to like see one, you're like, what? That's that's crazy. You just live on TV, don't you? Um, <laughs> so that was fun. He and she thought the same thing. She was like, don't you give me financial advice on the TV? I don't understand. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> no, no, we don't. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, that's right. I, think I was too too busy making drinks. Okay, um, so you so are you comfortable saying which music venue you were the cocktail bartender at, or would you rather not say? Oh, it was it right. It was a, uh, a rel- it was, I don't even think it exists anymore. But ah. it was in a, it was in Hackney. It was called the Hackney Ocean. And when it first opened, there was like a big hoopla about it. And MTV had it. Do you remember when MTV used to be a music channel? Um, Vaguely, about 20- yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago, and they used to play music. It was ah. crazy, and they used to do a thing called a five night stand. And they had that there. So, like, they had a different axe on every single night. But, oh. like, there were crazy people. Like, the fun-loving criminals were great. Oh, I don't think... But I met the fun-loving criminals. They were a big band in England. They're American, but um, I think they're bigger hit. Yeah, well, that was and much they, like the Killers. They got their start in England, even though they're yeah. uh, an American band. So you worked at that venue doing like serving drinks and stuff. What I'm trying to figure out is the timeline of all of this, because the, this is a lot of jobs. So you're doing this... Yeah, whilst- you're a student... Like when you're a student, oh. you get through jobs because like in the summer you go home. Yeah. So you might only have one of those jobs for like three or four months. Okay. So you some of these were during university. Like when yeah, you yeah, exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right. So anything else that you can think of that you a specific customer service job that you did? I consider teaching uh, customer service real yeah, talk. Yeah, so the teaching the te- we've got we've got some good teaching stories. Um but yeah, teaching's been great. Um I've really enjoyed that. So I generally work with them special needs kids. Oh. And I work with kids in gangs. So um, sometimes the children who are too violent to go to school, that they've been excluded from school for violence, they're the ones I teach. So mm-hmm. like one of my students was murdered, which was very sad. Oh, my God. Uh, it was just after I finished teaching. Yeah, he died in like, like a um, gang turf drug thing. Oh, um, he was sh- and being shot in London is rare. Yeah. We, we don't we have a gun problem. We're more stabbing problems here. And um, so that was very sad. But, yeah, it's one of the, that's one of the best jobs I've ever had. So uh, what? Being a, being a teacher, like it's kind of hard because you want to tell things on stage, and to be able to get bigger, you need more like an online profile. So you've got to make a choice of what you want to do. Oh, so is that really the de- that was the decision of okay, I have to get away from teaching yeah, I, so I can have an online presence? Yeah, because 
um, like I want to be able to tell stories online, which I don't think the special needs kids would appreciate if they, I, like I, they're, they're two different jobs. Sure. And I think people understand you can have one job during the day and one job in the evening. But when you're dealing with people with learning difficulties, I think it's unfair on them and um, you've got to give them the best chance. So okay. And also, I think that's for me, because when you're concentrating on just one thing, you're going to perform better on it. That's right. That's right. I mean, when you throw all your all your eggs into one basket, they say that that's when things take off. So I think for clarity for our um, American audience, we have an international audience that'll probably understand what you've already said. But for our American audience, when you say special needs in the States, that's usually like um, autism, uh, severe ADHD, uh, mental handicaps of some kind. So generally it's dyslexia and autism and ADHD. Okay. Uh, But also um, behavioral issues. So generally violent behavioral issues. So I guess that's what I'm trying to get clarity on. How are those groups put together thinking that that's going to be a successful teaching environment where you have some kids who are not learning disabled, they're just violent. And then you have kids who would probably need more hands on. It's one on one teaching. Oh, okay. They're not all in the same room. room. So it's effectively if somebody can no longer go to school. So generally that's due to like, like their violent behavior, but it could be because they've got such crippling anxiety due to their autism or their dyslexia that they've actually fallen out of school and they need somebody to like reignite the idea of learning to them. And like when you achieve that, that's an amazing feeling. Oh, I bet. And so you would, it's essentially what we would consider like one-on-one tutoring. So you're basically homeschooling them. Yeah. Okay. So they're not in a traditional environment. You're going to their houses. So they're not at school. So normally you physically go to see them at their residence or you'd see them in a library. Uh, It depends how violent the child was as well. Obviously, sometimes there might be two tutors there and just one child. Yeah, because you're afraid they're going to put hands on you? Well, I'm not afraid because I'm six foot four, but obviously not all tutors are like that. And it's a strange thing in England, I I, I don't know, that you'd be able to protect yourself from them, but it would always be better to have a witness there in case anything happened. So if that was that situation for safeguarding purposes, the agency would always have two tutors, which is for our benefit and for the student's benefit as well. Wow. And so did you ever have a situation where you were a little afraid or the kid did get violent? Right. I've ne- I was never afraid when I was one-on-one with a student. Um, I had a student who turned up once and literally just swore at me for four months. And I was like, I'm here to teach you. Every 15 minutes, I've got to ask you if you want to learn. Like, that's what you have to do. And he would literally just tell you to F off all the time. And um, we were in a public library. And one of his English tutors was there, and she was a lady. And he started being very abusive to her. And I was like, look, I don't care what you say to me, but you definitely don't say that to her. Um, and we definitely don't do this in public library. This is ridiculous. If you if you want to hit somebody, you can hit me. I went there. We obviously, oddly, where I was teaching was opposite a courthouse. So there was like a million cameras everywhere. So I knew he was never going to hit me. But I'm six foot four. He was a 15-year-old. He must have been 5'2", five 5'3". Five I was a clear foot taller than him. And I was like, you cannot do this anymore. I went, I'm not teaching anymore. I, that's it. We're finished. And the next day, I was going back to the same place to teach a different student. And I saw that student with 15 of his friends. And I was like, fuck, this could get scary. But he saw me and ran away. I was like, Christ, I must have done a good like, impression of a tough guy the previous day. But yeah, that was that was that was the only time I genuinely been scared. Because oh, you saw so he was sort of out in the wild with 15 of his friends. Yeah, so, um, when you walk to this public library, you walk through like a like a London Square, you know, with the benches. Yep, and got it. Yep. So as I'm walking through that, he's with a group of his friends on one of the benches, smoking weed, that type of thing. 
And I'm like, fuck, like this could now get nasty. But he spotted me and they all left. So that was great. And I just went to work, didn't think about it again. So how does, so like in the, in the States, there's this thing with attrition. So if you are not going to school up until the age of 18, it's considered attrition where you are like in violation of basically like if you are school aged uh, prior to university, you are meant to be in school. Otherwise it can be. I don't know all of it because I don't have kids, but like whatever that is, is that true in the UK as well? That if you are school aged, you are expected to be in school. So this kid yeah. would have consequences for not for being abusive. Yeah. So actually that actually there's a big thing about it in England. If kids stop going to school, their parents can get prosecuted. Yeah. That's what I think it is here too. It's like, yeah. I think the word is attrition, but I'm not sure. Go ahead. Yeah. But it's either, so you either need to be in school or, or a learning environment. So you could go and like learn to be an electrician or like those. I don't know exactly if that's right. But if you're on like a graduate scheme, I'm sorry, graduate scheme would be too old. But if you're doing like a work experience type of thing, which leads to a job. We call that vocational think, here. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In MVQ. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So if you're learning to do that, that's fine as well. But traditionally people are in school to 16-ish they could, for their GCSEs. And then for A-levels, they can either keep studying and that will take them to university or they can go to college to learn trade. It's up to them. There's loads of things you can do now. Oh, um, sure. It's not not like when we were young. Um, <laughs> it's like you can probably get a university education off YouTube if you really looked hard enough. Fair enough. They call it YouTube University. That's a real thing. Okay, so back to you. So you, so But that was, you really enjoyed teaching kids with special needs. Yep. That was an enjoyable thing. Is it mostly because you would see the sparkle in their eyes when they would actually want to learn? Like I had some great stories. Like obviously, like the student being murdered is a terrible story, but um, but I've had some like some brilliant success stories. And when you see somebody progressing, especially if they're like, I taught maths and science, which aren't exactly like the go-to subjects for people. They're like, well, maths and science. Like most people, they they're scared of that. But if you if you can find out what interests somebody, you can teach them anything. Mm, that's right. Yeah, that's right. and I would like play games and like figure out figure out how to get them to interact with me. And even if they're in gangs, if they're on their own, they don't need to be an alpha. Oh, they so get to beta. Yeah. Yeah. So I played, I broke my leg and I spent like six months like on the sofa just playing video games. Um, we play a football game called FIFA. And so I would go and see these kids and they would see if they'd like an Xbox or a PlayStation or, you know, other games consoles are available. Um, <laughs> and you would go like, all right, if you can beat me at this football game, um, one lesson a week, we'll do whatever you like and you've never got any homework. I went, but if I beat you at this game, then you've got to do all the homework and you've got to turn up to every lesson and do what I say. And I'd look at you and go, yeah, yeah, fat man, right? You'll never beat me at this game ever. And you'll be like, okay, like go get your brother or whatever, whoever's in the house. And you'll tell them the bet. And they'll be like, I'm never losing to this man. And then they'll be like 10 nil down at half time. They'll be like, what's happening? And I'd go, <laughs> I'd, go, I'd go, you looked at me and you judged me. You don't even know me. You just assumed I couldn't do this. I went, how many people look at you and they don't know you and they judge you? I'm going to cry. And they, and then they would realize, oh, this guy's crazy and quirky, but he actually does know what he's doing. And he knows because what they're going like, through. Like you, yeah. you, you spoke to their emotions. Yeah. And as soon as you can connect with somebody, then, then you're okay. Because like, you're not going to learn everything every lesson. But as long as they turn up to the lessons, if they're like, fuck, I've got to see Steve, like, you're finished, you're finished as a, as a teacher or tutor or whatever. You're done. If they're like, yeah, I know I've got to learn math. And if some idiot's got to teach me, it can be that giant clown who's just going to tell me terrible jokes in two hours, right? At least they turn up and that's the important thing. And if you keep turning up, the same with comedy, same with everything in life, 
you are naturally going to get better. I agree with that statement. What is your, what's the most proud like success story that you have um, from that, from teaching? Oh, I thought I had, I, um, I I still talk, I still talk to his, um, his family. His mom's lovely. And um, yeah, when I first started teaching math, he wouldn't come down from his room. And so I just, you just kept turning up, just keep turning up. I'd have a cup of tea with his mom. The mom would go upstairs, ask Mr. X if he'd like to come down the stairs. And then like after three weeks, he came down the stairs, stayed for five minutes. And then that was 10 minutes. And then it was 20 minutes. And then it was an hour. Then it was two hours. And he would never go out. And now I'm getting pictures of him like planting fruit and veg in his garden, going outside with his mom. Yeah, like considering going to college. Like you get those success stories. It's incredible. Was he autistic or what was his? uh... Oh, okay. He was autistic and suffered from crazy anxiety. Oh, bless him. Oh, that's so yeah. lovely. That's got to feel amazing. So are you afraid? Yeah. To, are you going to miss that when having transitioned to full-time comedy? Yeah. Yeah. I'm always going to miss that. I'll still always have that a couple of lessons for the kids who are just like finishing off the, like if I've been teaching them for the last three years, there's four months till their exam. I'm still going to help them till then. That would be silly not to. Yeah. Um, assuming that's okay with their parents. But yeah, it, it's, you've got to make a decision for you. And it's something that I've enjoyed doing so much. And it will be a sad time when I don't do it anymore, but I want to move on to other things. Also, now I've got a baby, so I can look after the baby during the day. Then in the evenings, I can do comedy, so it's better for childcare. Childcare is crazy expensive. Yeah, it is. (laughs) It's crazy expensive everywhere. That's right. It's like you're, you're getting a job just to pay someone to do a job you could do. It doesn't make any sense. It's a bit odd, yeah. Okay, so what was your favorite job of all of the customer service jobs that you've had? If you have to pick one, what is it? Comedy doesn't count cocktail bartender obviously in a music venue that was awesome okay why right oh there's loads of it so so my two favorite things about this so the chef who works there worked with the rolling stones and marilyn manson damn yeah so you were getting so i found out that keith richards is the loveliest dude in the world and that just makes my heart fill with joy because everyone loves keith yeah and he the guy was from South America. I can't remember exactly where in South America he was, but I was like, oh, how did you get the job with the Rolling Stones? And he's like, I turned up at their concert. I went backstage. I started cooking. Never left. He literally just a- started cooking. Yeah, he's like, got in. And like, that's how he explained it in like the broken English. And the guy was crazy. The guy was crazy. There was a, there was a boy band that played there like when MTV were there. And something happened, but they missed their opportunity to like eat food. So they ordered like this giant Chinese takeaway. And the chef came in, he looked at it and went, I wouldn't even eat that crap. Disappeared and poured himself a large scotch and drank it. And I'm like, you're brilliant. I love you. You're the best person ever. I love it. Okay, so that was your favorite. So did you get to interact with a ton of the, ba- I know you said Baby Spice and like you've learned. Yeah, so I, I met Peter, like I don't know how famous the bands are in America, but like Stereophonics. Um, oh yeah, I know who they are. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, but just those bands that, um, God, Papa Roach played. I think are they st- they still exist in America? I don't know. <laughs> um, but they also had talking tours as well. Howard Marks, who um, was a famous hashish dealer, um, he came out of prison, then did a spoken word tour about his book. Wow. Um, called Miss Place, which they turned into a film. It's uh, quite famous here. Um, big on big with students that book. But he was there, so that was interesting to me. Howard Marks. Um, but again, it was like one of those university jobs. It was like six seven months. Sure. But I lived in I lived in it was in Hackney and I lived in this council estate in Hackney and it was so dangerous I used to get the bouncers to walk me home. Can you explain to people who have not been to the UK what uh, council house means? We have a different language for it here. Oh, so like um, 
yeah, just like the dangerous areas to live, the, the areas which have more like petty crime and street crime. And we call it uh, the projects, right? So if you were in a yeah, council so, house, that's the state, yeah, so, yeah. state funded. If, if, that is, if that is the similar thing. Yeah. Um, obviously, we don't have guns here, but <laughs> there, was an ice, there was an ice cream van that used to come around at midnight. Do you have ice cream vans? And they've got like the doodle, 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 We do, doodle. but there are so, I mean, they usually are fronts for things if they're coming into neighborhoods at midnight. Yeah. So, yeah, so exactly. So we had one of those that came into the estate at midnight and was definitely not selling Cornellos. That was something else. That's where we lived. And it was also, it was during a period in England where we had like garage dance music and that was quite violent as well. Is that like grunge? Yeah. What, what's what's grunge? No, so grunge was like guitar-based super rock by Heavens, by, from the Heavens and Gods from Seattle. Um, so, so grime music would. This is a terrible description. My friends are going to kill me for saying this. It would be like the UK's attempted equivalent of gangster rap, I suppose. Ah, okay. Like Two-step two beat. So yeah, so it would be like people from from those areas talking about you know how violent they are and how many guns they have or drugs they have or whatever. And that, and so that created like a violent music scene. So that if they had one of those nights on, there would be like metal detectors everywhere, which is quite very rare at the time in London, like 20 years ago. And you would like try to never ever work those nights. Gay nights, gay nights are the best nights to work. Oh, you make the most tips on the planet. Yeah. Those are the best nights. They're incredible. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And as I always wanted to be Christian Slater, I had like long hair, like I was in Heathers and that type of thing. So yeah, gay nights are the best, best times to get tips. That was it. Yeah, and and in London that is not known for tipping or the UK in general. No. I bet. Oh. Yeah. So how does that? Swear, oh, go ahead. No, I swear when you're in when you're in America and they hear the English accent, the waitresses or waiters are like, nah, we shut down. You can have that. Yep. You can have that. <laughs> we give you away. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I don't understand because when I was there, the I asked a couple of the bartenders and they had said, especially because they were working in it at the time. They still were like, no, we don't want to change this to a tipping culture like you guys have in the States because it makes it too intense. It like the stakes become higher. Like we're happy to just make I think it was like 10 pounds an hour or something, which 10 pounds an hour is not you. London is enormously expensive. You cannot live on that. And so I said, I was like, well, can people slip you a tip or whatever? And they said, yeah, with you Americans, we expect it. So we hope you guys still tip us. And they said, but no, on the whole, we just kind of make whatever. That's why I've never had slower service in my life than when I was in London. With the tipping thing, it's a strange thing. Like I tip. Um, if, if it's good service and people are coming to your table, if you go to the pub and you buy a drink at the bar, I don't tip that bartender. But if I'm in a bar where there's service, that's very different. But there's on the restaurants in England, maybe 11.5% service always included. Yep. And I think that was mainly because, um, so the business people that would go out to lunch and they would be expensing their meals, if they tipped, I think they had to personally pay for it. So the restaurants instantly clocked on and just added the tip straight to the bill. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, well, they said it's not compulsory because I noticed it on a lot of the bills when I was eating and they said, oh, no, you can take this off if you want it. And I was like, who takes this off? And they said a lot of people do. And I was like, yeah, really? I th- like, I think the worst thing, I know this is one of the questions we're just chatting, like, one of the questions is, like, will you ever not tip? But there's something worse than not tipping. And Would you will know this if you've ever been a waiter or a waitress, and it's just leaving, like, like 12 pounds. Yeah, yes. like, literally nothing. Yep. You're like, you were so meaningless, but I want you to know you were meaningless yep. at your job. Like, here's seven cents. That's it. And, like, like if that happens, if that, it never happened to me whilst I was a waiter or a cocktail bartender or any bartending, 
But I've, I've done that to people if they've been incredibly, incredibly rude. And I've obviously we'll go on to these stories. So. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm going to pause this stupid fucking free meeting situation is happening uh-huh. again. We have five minutes left on this one. So I'm going to shut this down. You're all going good. You're all happy. You're doing great. And that's why I don't want to end this. So. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us for part one with Steve Main. Join us next week for part two. Thank you, folks, so much for listening. Good night. I'll just restart. It could be the rain. It could be the rain. It is, it is London rain, and that's crazy. I have not. I never experienced the whole time I was there. I didn't get to experience the like crazy storms y'all talk about. I was really disappointed. I mean, it rained like twice the whole time I was there. Well, that's. Uh, I bring the sunshine. You do bring the sunshine. You're a ray of sunshine. Thank you.